So I'd like to talk a little bit and set a context for the teaching that uh, Catherine and Yana and I will do, all of us, this morning. Um, just by um, um, making what I think is a framing question or a framing way for us to talk about this topic. I actually you know, got the the idea for the, the... This is a story I'd like to tell you about. It happened this morning. I, uh, uh, I stopped on my way here quite early, about 6 o'clock in the morning, to have breakfast in a cafe in uh, San Anselmo, where I often stop for breakfast when I come down on a Wednesday morning. And uh, there are regulars in that cafe at 6 o'clock in the morning. I, I know that. And I'm one of them, actually. And everybody sits at their own table, and they nod at each other. Nobody ever moves over and sits at another person's table. Everybody stays <laughs> in their table. But they know each other, and I've realized over over time, actually over years, that uh, the conversation they now have conversations with each other at other tables. They haven't moved over to one group. But and uh, the particular man who comes in every morning and brings the San Francisco Chronicle with him this morning. He brought the Chronicle and sat down and started to read. And then he said to the man at the next table, he said, uh, hey, he said, look at this. He said, uh, reading an article in today's Chronicle, he said, a guy made a book, a boat, out of all together, out of wine bottle corks and rubber bands. <laughs> the person next table said, yeah? He said, yeah. It took him years. He collected 160,000 corks. <laughs> he put seven corks together with a rubber band into a hexagon. And then he put all the hexagons together in fishing nets to make stacks, sewed them up that way. And then he curved the stacks and he lashed them together. And now here he is with his friend sailing his boat. It looks like a Viking boat, really, with a curved up prow in front <laughs> down a river in Portugal. And the other man thought about it, and then he said, well, you've got to do something with your life. <laughs> so right away I saw the topic for this morning. <laughs> First of all, I thought to myself, that's, a, that's very interesting. Do you have to do something with your life? That's even number one question. Is that true? You have to do something with your life. And then, if you do, or if you decide that you do, what do you have to do with your life? So that was this morning's question. And um, I'm thinking about when he said, you have to do something with your life, I... At a moment, I, I've, I've flashed back on a friend of mine who's been dead for more than 10 years now. Died quite young of, um, well, young-ish, of uh, breast cancer. More than 10 years ago. Um, and I remember talking to her uh, about her struggle around the time of... Um, 
the the beginning of the women's movement and uh, the beginning of Ms. Magazine and uh, uh, the growing importance it was amongst women in this country uh, to think about their lives as as uh, worthy of careers as anyone else, not to be limited in any way. And she said, I feel really bad at parties. She said, that was the word. She said, my life is fine. She, she had uh, two children still in high school. She was dedicated to her role as a full-time mom keeping her family going. Her husband traveled quite a lot. And I'm thinking as I'm saying this, my covering up for Elizabeth, but whatever. She did, what, did not have something at which she was gainfully employed. She said, I don't have a problem about that myself. She said, I have a problem when I go to parties because people say to me, what do you do when they meet me? And then finally she said to me, I figured out what to say to the people. She said, I say to them, I'm working on my consciousness. If you remember those times, you remember that it was equally a time when working on consciousness was a thing that people said about themselves. It was a new thing that people said about themselves. Wonder if people didn't work on their consciousness before or whether working on the consciousness isn't a particular name that we give to, I'm trying to figure out how to live this complicated life in some sort of a way that's meaningful to me and that people have done that since the beginning of time and we just gave it a fancy name at some point or another when consciousness became a word that we used. Elizabeth said, I tell them I'm working on my consciousness. So then I, think that I thought to myself, well, that's an interesting thing to say. Could you just say that about yourself? Well, of course, Elizabeth did. I'm perfectly happy that she did. But I was thinking about that as I continued it in my mind because I was particularly taken yesterday with two different conversations I had with people. I don't actually even remember who said what to whom, and I, I wouldn't tell you who anyway because some of them might even be here. Mm -hmm. um, but I had two conversations with people who are part of this new dedicated practitioners program that we're, Spirit Rock now has. Uh, and you may be, I, I know some of you are here from that program. But um, again, I, I take from that, I, I mention that particularly because the word dedicated is uh, the word, the, the, the operative word that I'm thinking about. What does it mean to be a dedicated practitioner? Um, I, I, I don't want to ask it just rhetorically. I guess I do want to ask it to you as a thing for you to think about. But, and, not but, and for myself, I want to put it back into the framework of, um, would you have to think of yourself as a dedicated meditator, a dedicated mindfulness practitioner, could you think of yourself as a person who thought about life? Um, I don't remember what famous person it was. It's a famous person of antiquity 
We talked about the unexamined life not being worth living. Do you think about yourself as a person who examines their life, who thinks about it, wonders, what am I doing here? Why am I here? How did I get here? What am I supposed to do while I'm here? Um, we do that as a, as a species. My friend Guy Armstrong, uh, uh, when we teach together, often brings with him a cartoon. You ever seen Guy's cartoon? Has he told you his cartoon? It has four boxes in it. And the first box is a reptile just creeping out of the sea. You can see it's evolutionary cartoon. Reptile creeping out of the sea, making its way onto land. It's got a thought bubble over its head. And it's thinking, um, eat, survive, procreate. And then it shows you some land animal walking around in the next box. And it's got a thought bubble. And it's thinking, um, eat, survive, procreate. Then it shows you monkeys swinging around in the trees. And the thought bubble, eat, survive, procreate. And the last box, it's got a person sitting on a rock, looking up at the sky and thinking, I wonder what I'm doing here. <laughs> at some point in the history of evolution, there began to be a certain thing called reflexive thought, where we begin to wonder. I actually think it matters that that person is looking up at the sky. I think there's a sense of awe. Not only what, what am I supposed to do here, but how did I get here? You know, and how did I get here? And why am I like me? Or you like you, any of you. And what does that mean? We think about things. And then we wonder, and then we wonder if there's a purpose. So are we dedicated to wondering and thinking? And are we dedicated to wondering and thinking with a purpose? And there were two things that people said in our conversations yesterday that I just want to mention. And figure at that point I've set the context for our discussion. People ask me in those in our in in our meetings, uh, they tell me about their practice and they say, Do you think I'm doing the right thing or do you have some idea about how I could do this differently? The meeting with the teacher is kind of like a practice coach, you know, this is what I'm doing, what do you think of this? You have another idea that I might do as well. And somebody said, you know, I was noticing about my practice that it felt, I'm not sure whether the word this person used was uh, a little bit dry or a little bit stale or it just wasn't so productive. So I thought, well, maybe I should do it this way. And I started to do it this other way. What do you think of that? You think this is a good other way? And what I thought to myself is that the main thing that I heard in that conversation was the question and the awareness, uh-oh, something is not as 
productive, as fruitful, as interesting, as forthcoming, as I expected and wanted and intend to it to be, so I'll try something else. And it really, it seems to me, I, I, I have a great confidence that it doesn't much matter what else it is that we figure out to do. I, I even said, I, you know, if I had that thought and I figured, you know, I'm going to begin now meditating, leaning over at a 45 degree angle and see what that does, or <laughs> leaning back, or even I had a thought about, uh, just went through my mind, I didn't mention about my friend Jack at some point having an instruction from his teacher to meditate while sitting on the side of a well. So at that point it wakes up all sleepiness because you don't want to <laughs> fall into the well. And so it was a very uh, valuable instruction. But every instruction, I'll do it this other way with the intention of waking myself up some more is a valuable, is already the answer to the question. To have the question and then to be on the alert, is this working? Is 45 degrees really a good angle to sit at? Is this helpful to me or not helpful to me? Should I, <laughs> should I try it or not try it? Should I continue it or not continue it? The very sense of I'll try something and then I'll evaluate it. It'll either work or not work. It'll be good or not good. The very sense of what's good and what's not good. What's a fruitful practice? What's a not fruitful practice? Already to be thinking in those terms is to have arrived at the answer. It means to be alert to the process, to be looking, to be expecting, and to maybe even keep changing what it is we expect. But it certainly is the examined life. So that was one thing I wanted to say. And then another person said to me, um, uh, apropos of, of uh, different kinds of practices to do, uh, this person said, you know, I was very struck at the end of the uh, first dedicated practitioner's retreat that just happened in Yucca Valley. Jack said uh, to the group, you know, here we've talked about all these practices, if you didn't do any other practice for the two years that you're in this program, and you just did metta for yourself, that would be enough. I thought, aha. So I thought about that a little bit. And I, I thought about the, the it became immediately at least clear to me that the message in that uh, was at least to examine the question, is there such a thing ever as doing metta only for yourself? I actually don't think so. If you really have the sense of uh, I'm cultivating a good heart with myself as the object, it wouldn't end there. I cultivated a good heart. Everybody would be the recipient of my good heart. It would be in itself on behalf of all beings whether I intended it to be or not. I can't say, okay, I'm now cultivating metta for myself, and just for that, I'm putting an invisible shield around me, and no one else is going to enjoy my... I mean, it doesn't work that way to have a good heart. I even thought it the other way. Um, could you decide, no, no, I'm not worthy, I'll just do metta for everybody else, but not me. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't... That You can't do that either, since... The sense of uh, being able to fully wish well comes through 
being able to be really completely in a benevolent space, which means yourself as well. I mean, we cannot, we don't do it out that way. We do it through the medium of our own heart and only as much as our own heart is open. So there's no other way to be, so to speak, doing metta for anyone else. It's a whole question about whether there's anyone who does metta at all or whether metta happens when there's no one here and no one there and indiscriminately. (laughs) How about that for a very Zen thing to say? Actually, it's not a Zen thing to say. It's an Advaita thing to say. (laughs) But but really, uh, in fact, when, when, uh, when we aren't captivated in a sense of separateness, metta happens. And then there isn't anything that has to get done. And the last thing uh, was um, thinking about that question of metta and doing it for oneself. The other, the other take I had on that is uh, uh, the, sometimes people say, uh, it's hard for me to wish well for myself. I feel reserved about that. Or other people, it's easy. There's the classic teaching of the Buddha that said there is no one more worthy of your good wishing than yourself. And yesterday, for the, I had a whole momentary new understanding about that, where um, I've taught it a lot and I've said it a lot, and maybe I've said it and understood it in the context of there's no one more worthy because everyone is worthy, and the and no one will get more uh, of a sense of metta than you can generate for yourself. So that, uh, in fact, for the merit of all beings, you merit it as much as all beings. But then I thought, actually, maybe it also means um, something about the uniqueness of every single being and that the merit is on the preciousness of this human birth in whatever form it's taken, whatever place in the journey it's unfolding itself. And then I thought maybe it's a great wisdom statement uh, that worthiness, even the sense of worthiness, has a sense that some people are more worthy, some people are less worthy. And that really, if we had an understanding, if I have, when I understand karma clearly, then I know that, I absolutely know that no one can be other than how they are right now. That it's, uh, how they are is neither their merit nor, um, their non-merit, their fault not their merit and it's not their fault. It's really the karma of this moment. And uh, everybody is perfectly who they can be. And in fact, uh, sometimes when we think of um, um, you think of ourselves in our most disagreeable moments or other people in disagreeable moments, we might have the momentary thought that they don't merit good wishes. 
not ourselves or anyone else. But maybe in those disagreeable forms we merit it the most of all because of the amount of pain that's involved in that moment. So maybe we, so just to frame the question again, why are we here? What are we doing? What is it that's going to get done? How is it that in a life a person thinks to themselves to begin with? There's something that should be done. Not everybody imagines that there's something that needs to get done. So one of the questions that, uh, one of the things that I said to um, Catherine and Yanai and Martin, uh, who was sitting next to me through those meetings last week, I said, it's nice to see such young people now beginning to teach Dharma. Um, we're pretty old around here. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and my own experience was coming to Dharma practice really at midlife. I was 40 when I started to practice. It's always interesting to me. My teachers were younger. As it's always interesting to me. Um, Jung classically said, well, you have to get to be 40 to begin to think broader than yourself. But obviously not. <laughs> so I thought it would be wonderful for them to come and talk about their own story and their own process and what they plan to do and something of their th thinking, if they're prepared on this make-it-up-as-you-go basis, to talk about what do you think it is that we're meant to do. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Where did you get the idea that there was something to do? Did you start your practice thinking, this is something I want to do, or did you think about this is something that needs to get done? You want to go first? Okay. Perhaps I can start with Sylvia's theme of dedication because I think that may be the root in to understanding what it is that stimulated and encouraged me to begin practice. Because what I think I'm coming to see, although I'm sure I'll be uh, corrected if there's anything false in this, what I think I'm coming to see is that through whatever it is I'm dedicated to, whatever practice or previous to practice, whatever pathway in my life I was dedicated to, that if I'm willing to stay inquiring with the dedication and not assume that this is it. So that the dedication is more like the, the, the front or the, the lead in or the energy that leads me in. But if I'm willing to keep questioning and not fall asleep behind the dedication, you know, of the various paths that I've done, that that in itself will be the creative energy to actually involve me in alive, vital processes which is what I feel called to do. You know, so it's not any one thing in particular that I feel called to do, although at this moment it seems to be at least dedicating the energy to um, enable a center in France to begin, which we can say a little bit more about later. 
So what that looks like on a practical level is, for my journey, um, there was there was quite a strong sense of uh, dedication with re- relationship to suffering. You know, so having a view about what that looked like. There is suffering in the world, you know, coming from a, a good kind of a sort of zealous Catholic missionary type background, you know. There is suffering and it's your duty to go and serve that. It's your duty to go and alleviate that. Your duty to go and work with that. And being dedicated to that, because that's what I knew, what, what I knew how to do. So taking various paths, different jobs, different roles in that. Eventually winding up in the place that had the most stereotype of what that looked like from, from a an Irish-English, Anglo-Irish Catholic point of view, the, um, the archetypical place of that was Calcutta. You know, that's where all kind of suffering ended, all suffering begun and ended. That was the view. Finding myself there with still that dedication which had behind it somewhat of a, a missionary zeal of, I'm going to help them people, I'm going to help those people, I'm going to help those people. You know. But staying awake in that process, staying awake while I was there and actually being confronted with the question and the um, questioning of what my dedication was. Because while I saw, while working there, while being there, while I saw, yes, there was tremendous suffering, there is tremendous suffering on the level of survival, of poverty, of food, of need, but what I s- thought I saw was that my assumptions about what that was and what I was dedicated to, so I had an assumption, there is suffering, I'm dedicated to working with that. When I was actually there in the creative encounter with real people, with real people in that process, it was clear that yes, some of them were deeply suffering. Some of them were suffering not only in the level of survival, but of the, of the, of the spirit. And some of them weren't. Some of them weren't. And in that, in that environment, it was um, the invitation to me was, hold on, all your views, your views may not be so true. Your views about what is suffering and who serves suffering and what is the alleviation of suffering may not be as true as you think. And this is kind of, oh God, <laughs> you know? So. This person clearly, clearly is. But this person, this leper, who comes to have his wounds um, uh, debrided every morning to the clinic, you know, where his parts of his feet and toes and nose were falling off, this one looks like he's suffering, but this man has such a sparkle in his eyes, has such a spirit in his heart, I can't be the arbiter anymore of who is suffering here. And that's kind of a, a, a humbling position to be in because suddenly all my zeal and dedication, not that it wasn't worth anything, because it was okay, but it was asking me again to look, who are you in this? What are you in this? Where, it, where is your, what are your assumptions? What are your views? So stepping back a little bit and seeing that I didn't know actually that it was fine to be dedicated to whatever I was dedicated to, but not to fall asleep behind that with any sort of zeal. 
that I didn't know. So it didn't mean quitting that necessarily, but opening up the, the relationship to become more creative, so that rather than me stamping my idea of what dedication was on this city, on this person, on myself, on my husband, stamping my idea about what was the, my dedicated role, it was more, what's the creative encounter here? What is it where we're two beings coming together, two spirits coming together that actually can show each other? So that I like this theme of dedication and it's only through that wholeheartedness I think that we see anything, but at the same time to be willing to be shaken in that dedication, to be shaken so that it's not just led by my agenda, because that's how, we come, that's how I come to most moments, it's got my agenda. Until I'm awake with myself or with you, it's got my agenda in it. And as beautiful as my agenda might be, as wholesome as my agenda might be, am I willing to let my agenda just be what gets me there, leave it on the side and then be willing to be in that kind of vulnerable position of, okay, I don't know this, this is two beings, this is two situations, and it's going to vibrate together in a certain way, and can it create itself in that moment? And that excites me, that, that, that requires a letting go when I remember. And most of the times I'll see my agenda there, kind of, you know, right in front, oh, my agenda, and I kind of bang into it, oh, here's my agenda, oh, you know, I bang into my agenda again and again. But what would it be to be, for me, this is my own question, to be led by that interest in, in the beauty of beings, in the re- relief of suffering, in the understanding of suffering, to be led by that, but to not make that the ultimate position, so that we can create it together. Um, so my interest in this project is... I'm sure there's my agenda in it, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not, I don't kid myself that that's not there, but my interest is to let that be exposed to me, so that, um, I, you know, I, I say this from a clear position, other times I'll say, don't show me my agenda, you know, just let me get on with it, but to, to let that be revealed to me, so that, that, the, that life actually, it's life's um, creativity that will actually form this thing, as much as possible um, through all the beings that are there, through all the dedication. In the uh, <coughs> Native American tradition, when you don't feel you need to add anything, you just want to agree, you say ho. <laughs> so I could actually just say ho and uh, <laughs> uh, leave it there. But uh, since uh, Sylvia's given this space, I can also perhaps 
speak a little. Um, what are we doing here? What am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I kind of approach that question from the personal, my own experience. I can share a little bit of that, and equally perhaps from a perspective that comes not from the opposite direction, but from a, a different direction, we could say. And Initially, myself, it was interesting. I mean, I uh, don't think I've heard Catherine describe her initial sort of engagement with practice in quite that way before. It was really delightful. Um, for myself, Ever since my early teenage years, I think I had a very conscious sense of suffering, both personal and um, in the world, and a sense of somehow wanting some way to, to meet it that was very much bound up in the fact that I realized I, even if I could resolve the problems of my personal world and life, that nonetheless my sense of being in contact with, being touched with, the, the struggle of others in the world and the suffering of others was one that would mean that I wouldn't actually come to rest so long as anyone else was equally not in that place. Um, which is a kind of an interesting reflection as a, for an adolescent in a way in the context of the Bodhisattva understanding principle within uh, Dharma teachings. Of course, it was nothing that grand or um, wise at all. It was more like, help get me out of this condition, and what do I have to do to get there? Um, and I kind of explored what for me felt like a world where most people didn't seem to be interested in the questions that were most important. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.